welcome, welcomen, bienvenue to Down the Line, an episode-by-episode -episode review of the best TV drama series ever made, Secret Army. Hello, I'm Andy, and I've never seen any German soldiers around here. And I'm AJ, and I don't think the BBC would say anything if it wasn't true. <laughs> Surely not. Surely not. Oh, what a wonderful line there from this episode. Have you looked out your window, uh, Andy? Are you sure there's no German soldiers around? Actually, I've just looked out and there's loads of Germans in the field with bayonets prodding. So actually, I was wrong. But you're really shocked. You were just so convinced. I'm really shocked. So convinced no one was because around. I thought it was just all a myth of the French media. No. <laughs> oh, hello, listeners. We are so happy to be back. And today we are talking about a cracking episode, Lost Sheep. Yes, Lost Sheep it is. We are seven episodes in to series one, which it feels like it should be halfway. It isn't. It does feel a bit like it's halfway, but yeah, you're right. This is a very long season, isn't it? It is. Why is series one so long, Gandhi? <laughs> it's a very good question, AJ, because obviously 13 was the, was the standard length. Do you know why 13 was the standard length, by the way? Uh, a baker's dozen, no. I <laughs> I prefer your reason. <laughs> it was because it was a quarter of a year. Oh, of course. That that makes much more sense. I don't <laughs> yeah. know why I didn't just say that. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess if a new season started in January or if it started in September, as Secret Army did, then you'd run through to Christmas or you'd run through to spring. It was kind of, you know, at least you have this new season on BBC One thing. So that's that's why. Yeah, so the 16, I imagine they inherited some episodes from another series that they were going to run and they decided, oh, actually, we're not doing that anymore. And I can't remember what series it was. I may feel like I did know at some point that it was just probably a police series, which was usually 16 episodes and they got a few gifted on that basis. There you go. If Andy says it, it must be true. <laughs> no, write in someone. Someone write in. Tell us, where did Secret Army get its extra three episodes from? We need to know. Yeah. So to accompany our uh, look at Lost Sheep, we also have an interview with Christopher Gard, which I'm so excited for listeners to hear. Learned some lots of interesting things, and it's really nice to have people give up their time who are in Secret Army to come and chat to us. Especially seeing as he's the principal, well actually I was going to say he's the principal guest star for this episode. He isn't really, because that's Peter Barkworth, but he's high up there, sweetie. He's got the story. We follow him throughout the episode. We do. AJ, can I trouble you? for a gripping, if brief, plot summary. Well, I was going to try a different style of plot summary delivery today. <laughs> oh. Because normally what I do is I try and read it seriously and dramatically and then just end up making you laugh a lot as I fail to do that. <laughs> so, in this episode, <laughs> we've got a bloke called Romsey who's important to London. Oh, oh, oh gosh. This is a whole new, a whole new world. A whole new style. Da, 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 da. It's from Romsey's point of view. Anyway, <laughs> we've got a bloke, a down derman called Romsey. He's important to London due to his knowledge of a new radio system called Oboe. When he's going down the line, he's a bit of a waz. He accidentally takes the wrong train and he finds himself lost in the French countryside. He is eventually directed to the home of an English author, Hugh Neville. Neville's loyalties are unclear and a visit from his friend, Inspector Dubois, ultimately leads to a shocking betrayal. Dun, dun, dun. First, 
we've got a new writer to discuss. Last time, we'd covered the writer and the director before, so we didn't need to go into the details, but we've got a, a thrilling look at Norman today. <laughs> Let us progress forward crispwards to understand the enigma, I'm going to say, that was Norman James Crisp. Are you ready to join me on this on this journey? I am. I'm already excited. So I would say Crisp was actually hugely pivotal to Secret Army, as, as he was through many of Jerry Glaster's programmes. And that was because they often worked alongside each other to collaborate on creating them. So with NJ Crisp, he created a series called The Expert, which was about the investigations of a forensic pathologist called Dr. John Hardy, played by Marius Goring, who most Doctor Who fans will know for having played Maxtable in The Evil of the Daleks. But that was a huge series back in the late 60s, early 70s. The 13-part children's adventure series, The Long Chase, which may, many of you may fondly remember, shot entirely on film. Do you know who starred? Who was the, the ingenue lead of The Long Chase? Gary Russell. No, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Jan Francis. Oh! Yes! Then there was the... I love this phrase I used in the book, boardroom to bedroom saga. <laughs> the brothers. I don't think I would use that now. It sounds wrong. Anyway, and also the least successful of those was the gritty oil strike north. I knew you were going to say that. Because <laughs> we, um, when we looked at, in our episode on Lisa Codename Yvette, we looked at some of the other shows and you were like, sounds boring. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I think it was. But that was the thing he did immediately before Secret Army, so it's, it's, it's relevant to mention it. Um, Crisp had also written five episodes of Culditz, which of course was also Jerry Glaster's, including the, the important opening episode of Series 2, which introduced the character of Major Moon. Moon? Mon? I can't remember. It's years ago since I watched it. Played by Anthony Valentine. So he was also had a reputation for being someone who could turn a series fortunes around just by nature of his writing. And this is what he was tasked to do on, it's one of the most successful police series of all time, which is Dixon of Doc Green. And he was asked to bring it dragging and screaming into the 70s, as it was, to make it more relevant. And one of the things he did was introduce female police characters. No. Yes. Women can't do jobs. <laughs> they can't do policing, surely. But he also wrote more hard-hitting scripts as well. So he was responsible for bringing that up to speed. I think it's also important to mention that he was a founding member of the Writers Guild of Great Britain and it was founded in 1959 and he was responsible for chairing it for a few years. Most importantly he negotiated the first thousand pound fee for a writer so I thought that was a nice little fact. And he also negotiated writers getting pension contributions with payment for a script which is really important when you're yeah. desperately trying to ply your trade and get paid and <laughs> make money with your words. Yeah. So by the time we get to Secret Army though he'd already had a horrible health situation with his spinal cord oh. so he became disabled and his eyesight was failing but he kept writing until into his 80s so yeah he still kept going and I think as we will see as we go through this series of down the line, that um, many of the best episodes of Secret Army are penned by N.J. Crisp. Mm. There's something about that phrase as well, penned by N.J. Crisp, but I always feel I need to use that. I don't know why, but it's always penned by N.J. Crisp, never written by. Yes, I see, I see. He passed away in 2005, so um, yeah, sadly no longer with us. But yeah, to speak to your point, he wrote this one, 
the next one. <laughs> so this is um, Secret Army's only kind of two-part episode, isn't it? Yeah. Well, it's kind of it's kind of three parts in a way. He kind of wrote three part because Suspicions yeah. picks up a lot of this stuff, doesn't it? And that's that's episode fifteen. Yeah. Which is nice because we've kind of had a lot of episodes of the week, haven't we, so far? That haven't really had consequences kind of following on into other episodes. Yeah. Um, so much sometimes, but not so much. I think listeners will be uh, most familiar with the episode Trapped from series two, which is um, where Monique gets shot and is in hospital and the others have to rescue her. And yeah, arguably in the polls, run by myself on Twitter, (laughs) a top ranking episode, isn't it, Trapped? So I think it came in um, second or third. Yes, solid TV gold from Mr. Crisp. So we've already mentioned um, director Paul Annette on previous instalments of the pod. But here he is again. This is the third of seven episodes provided by Paul Annette. So, where are we in terms of filming this merry week? Well, I had assumed it was the Neen Valley Railway. But then you added Paddington Station, so now I'm intrigued. Shall I tell you how I know? I found this location myself, thank you. I'll wait for the round of applause. Oh, no, I can't hear... No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding. I'm going to add in a sound effect of an applause here. I was just going down to London back in the day to interview all of the cast for the book. I was thinking, I'm going to see which stations. And I was living in Oxford at the time, and I came in on Paddington Station. And I was thinking I was going to have to go to a few stations to find out which one it was. I got there, I was like, oh, it's this one. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I don't doubt you in any way, but I'm just curious. Like, how do you know? How do you know it's? Oh my one? god! And in asking that, I do sound like I doubt you, but I'm just curious. I'm cut to the quick. No, it's only because I've tried to do something similar for a different TV show, and I have wandered around L stations in Chicago, being like, "Is it from this episode?" And then not ever really being sure, even though I thought it might be. And then sometimes it, this, the scene was flipped, so it was that station, but the but it was in reverse. So like. Basically, I'm going to spin it this way. I want to learn from the best, Andy. Yeah, I think I'm just better at location scouting, clearly. (laughs) It's relevant to later on, so I'm just going to mention, I once spent, with my ex-wife, three hours looking for one tree in a wood. (laughs) (laughs) But that was actually for Doctor Who, for State of Decay, where the TARDIS lands. But we found it. There was joy when we found it, but it's quite hard to find a tree in a wood, I have to tell you. Yeah, because I think, I guess it's just... For me, I'm thinking Paddington Station will have changed a lot. Do you know which platform whereabouts in the station? Well, I know. It's the far left platform. So I imagine it's platform one um, because it's the one actually nearest the toilet. So in terms of the story terms, it does actually work. It's the far left one as you're leaving the station on a train. But if you're coming in, it's the far right one. That's really nice to read or hear because I've been there. That's the train when my sister comes to visit. When I lived in London and my sister came to visit from Cornwall, that's where I waited for her to get off the train. There you go. So you waited there with Natalie. Yes. But I had no idea at the time. I was just like, oh, my sister's train's late. I think I probably took some screen grabs with me and it was the barreled ceiling that was obvious. And then if you're actually on platform one, certainly back in the day, it looked identical. Ah, well, I'm going to London again soon because I split my time between Manchester and London. So um, I'll be there. You're going to lick the walls of the platform. No, I'm not going <laughs> to lick the wall, Andy. <laughs> What's the weirdest thing you've ever done at a location when you found it? <laughs> oh, well, it's brilliant. And it's, it's, I mean, I've been to locations for lots of different TV series over the year, but it's actually Secret Army. It's the best one. Was 
I found, I don't know whether we should say it because it's a spoiler, but I found a place where one of the regulars died and I lay down in that place <laughs> whilst photographs were taken, not realising it was commuter time just about to happen. And literally the whole street was suddenly filled with commuters worried that I was ill on the floor. <laughs> I love that. So then having to explain, no, I'm recreating a scene from a TV series from 1979. <laughs> I feel like fucking weirdo. <laughs> I haven't um, ever had that experience, but I, I do have some things um, in my home that I have picked up from filming locations. But I'm keen to stress, not theft. They're things like when I went to see... Um, where the Sarah Jane Adventures was filmed in Penarth, near Cardiff. Oh, yeah. I took a pine cone from the street outside the house. So, and I have like a, you know, bit of Sarah Jane's house with me. Moving on. Yeah, so definitely Paddington Station. But like the mining town from last week growing up, it was one of those places I was desperate to find was, look, they spent two episodes filming here. One of the cast members must remember. As we've talked about before, we're asking people to remember things that weren't, weren't their top memories in their lives it was just a work day and it was over 40 years ago so yeah we can't hold anyone to account when was this recorded this was recorded on the 2nd of september 77 at least the studio scenes were along with everything else april may probably we don't know (laughs) in 77 june perhaps somewhere in france it was first broadcast on the 19th of october 1977 so, let's move into the episode proper, like we're doing Going for Gold with Henry Kelly. So, <laughs> Curtis, at the start... Oh, my fury. Can I just get into that? Flight Lieutenant Romsey. Romsey, is that a common surname in your part of the world? No. Why? I always thought it was a place. Near Winchester, yes. Is that where you were born? No. Were you the only survivor? I don't know. No one else has been brought in. Look, my pilot gave the order to bail out and I went. That's all I know. Give me the names of your crew. Unless you're on your own up there. Pilot, Scott and Leader Potter. The rest? That's all. A crew of two. That's all I can say. He does the interrogation scene. And Lisa's just sort of sat there like a gangster's mole doing her nails. Or smoking or something. But she's the leader. And I know this kind of like... That scene would have worked if... Christopher Guard's character, Romsey, had responded to Curtis as if realising, oh, God, he's the big threat here. And, oh, God, these people are scary. I've got to respond to them. And he might have turned to her for emotional support or something. And she could have stood up and said, actually, I run Lifeline. I'm the one asking these questions. Or they could have, like you say, played on people's assumptions. So Curtis could have got so close he could have licked his neck. (laughs) and whispered in his ear and then left the room after his shouting and then you know lisa could have played on that and been like oh he's awful isn't he and then got some confidence he would have blabbed away because he always does and you know but there's they don't again they don't really follow it through and this as we'll cover is a very male-centric episode and i i really struggle when there's just scenes where women have to be present but are not given permission to speak in a scene like it's awful it's just it's that's the worst thing about this episode and I'm just putting it out there because I feel exactly the same. He's only there for posturing, though, isn't he? Do you know what I mean? It's It doesn't really help anything, but it's just there to show that he's he's a man and he can shout at people. <laughs> he's the man. <laughs> he's 
He's the man. <laughs> exactly. Can we talk about Christopher Gard? Yeah. What a wonderful performance. I love... This is my... I think that's my favourite thing about the show is his performance. He is so well cast and he just delivers every scene. He's just... Yes. Yeah. I have to say, he's a damn good actor. I can't think of anything I've seen him in which is bad. Have you ever seen I, Claudius? I haven't. But I know that you covered it on another podcast. <laughs> yeah, that wasn't why I mentioned it. But <laughs> Marcellus is such an important character in the first episode. And you think... Well, if you don't know your Roman history, you think he's going to run and be like the new emperor after Augustus, played by Brian Blessed, and Brian Blessed's character loves him, and they get on brilliantly, and he stands in front of the whole of the arena, the um, the Colosseum, to start the games, and he puts his arm out, slightly Hitlery, and all the crowd roar with appreciation of, of Christopher God's character, of Marcellus, because everyone loves him, he's the golden boy, and it's at that moment that um, Augustus's wife, Livia, decides she has to murder him because of that. She just hears that roar and she stops and holds herself and is like, fuck, I've got to have him murdered. Because she thinks that her son's got the chance to be the successor. At that moment, it all switches. And that's the first murder in I, Claudius. And she, he gets poisoned to death. So he's only in one episode, but he's a really important character and he's brilliant in it. Also, of course, he's Bellboy in Great Show in the Galaxy. Lots of Doctor Who references today, for which I'm not going to apologise. But the thing I didn't realise until recording now, although it's in my book, things in my book, I don't remember all these years later, I didn't realise he was Frodo in the animated Lord of the Rings. Bless him. We have to mention Christopher Gard's brother, Dominic Gard, who was Olivia in Terminus. Was his cousin also an actress, Pippa Gard? But I can't remember off the top Ooh, of my head what Pippa yeah. Gard was in now. But an acting family... His yeah. parents were actors also. And you have a story about that, don't you? Or is that going to be in the interview? It is going to be in the interview, but I, I will briefly mention it here. I won't go into all the details. But yeah. um, as his parents were actors and writers, they obviously had lots of friends in that profession too. And so Bernard Hepton would come round to his house for tea, which I love. And he said that um, Bernard was a lovely presence in the home. Good stuff. So I love how Christopher Gard's character is just... Honestly, he's such an idiot. <laughs> he's such a buffoon he puts his foot in everything and it's largely because of his privilege but it's also just because I think he's just an, he's just someone who goes through life like this just annoying everyone or or charming some people I guess Yeah. but the scene when he goes into the, the secret loft area and he says are you a driver or a brainy one like me and you just think are oh, you fucking idiot and and the guy says, no, I'm just a thick rear gunner. You you prick. He doesn't say you prick, but he should say it. In real life, he would... So um, it's interesting that you have got these upper-class officers. And you still have this in the army, don't you? They have people who go straight from university into these senior officer roles, looking after the plebs and telling the plebs what to do. Which... Oh, it's, Britain is so class-based, though, isn't it? But it's... Just, and then all of the, um, you know, the, the big army recruitment yeah. uh, efforts are in, you know, disadvantaged towns to get, to get everyone to sign up as the, as the soldiers. Yeah. Exactly. So um, it's good that we have that uneasy element here because it's not always shown so directly, I think. And often a lot of the younger people in Younger Evaded later in the series are all, all posh. So they deliberately had this kind of one who said he's a thick rear gunner. My assertion is that Romsey is gay and he doesn't know it because when he talks about Jeff Potter, his whole face lights up. His eyes go misty 
and he's just sat there with Curtis talking about Jeff Potter. And I'm like, he loves Jeff Potter. Even if he doesn't know he does, he does. But then it morphs into talking about oboe. <laughs> so I think he's actually quite into oboe as well, sexually. Because honestly, the misty-eyedness stays. And I was thinking, oh, it's not just about Jeff. It's Jeff and oboe together. That's what he loves. You're listening to Down the Line, a Secret Army podcast. Good to see women in the Candide. There was two or three. Did you notice? I did, yeah, yeah. And it, it, I, until you mentioned it, I hadn't consciously realised that you don't often see female customers in the Candide. Maybe it's because they know that if you try and frequent the Candide and have a wedding party there, it's going to go really wrong. So maybe that's why. Yeah. Um, exactly, it's got a reputation. But actually, you know, trying to cut Secret Army some slack, it could just be that it's reflecting the times in that the women are probably queuing for food. The men are probably having a beer in the Candide and that's probably sadly how gender rolls and what would take up your time in the day would be in the 40s. So Yeah, because other than the wedding episode, we've only really had Big Berta before, who's clearly a bit of a um, bit of a goer. And she's not a normal customer, is she? She's frequenting for business, really, isn't she? She is. And I think some of these women are frequenting for business because there's one point where Albert claps his arms on the backs of the German officer and his lady friend. Oh. <laughs> You're fine. Speaking of people we've noticed in the Candide, <laughs> <laughs> you know what else is interesting? If I said to you now, does the Candide ever have any male waiting staff? What would you say? I would say definitely not, but clearly there's one in this episode. Not in this episode. There are episodes in series two where they do. They have a, a waiter. Ah. Funny what you remember or don't remember, isn't it? Um, you noticed a bit of business that you enjoyed, didn't you, in the Condide between Romsey and Curtis? So again, that touches upon Christopher Gard's amazing performance. That In your episodes, you wrote that Curtis correctly spotted that Romsey had the twitch. So really sound of mind one minute and then in emergency just completely falls apart, is indecisive. Yeah. And Christopher Gard's performance is really good at showing that. So little details like when he's brought into the Candide and he's kind of frozen and Curtis has to step in and say, you know, oh, lovely to meet you and kind of almost takes his hand and then makes him shake his hand and then, you know, he's like, oh, oh come on, let's go, you know, through this door. And you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, he's, he's so frozen in that moment. He can't act naturally like he's just come in for a chat, you know, and he's meeting a friend he knows. And Yeah, yeah. And I'd actually missed... And, and it wasn't until I read my review of the episode that I rem- remembered about the Twitch thing that is mentioned by Curtis. And then it all makes sense about him being in the toilets and freezing and not wanting to come out, even though that guy's just shaving or whatever. But it's 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 really good writing to have have this character who's been on so many operational missions that he's just like at the point where he's just hanging out, basically, he, he, of himself. He can't deal. So we arrive in the French countryside. We don't know where, somewhere near Tours, apparently. And Romsey meets a collection of characters before he gets to the Neville's house. One of them is kind of this gamekeeper chap and the other one is a fisherman. And yet again, we have another wonderful Parisian in Secret Army, do we not? I don't know if that was like common sentiment uh, amongst the French, the rural French at the time, but I can't say it, Parisians? Yeah. They're not coming off well in Secret Army so far. Are we ready to arrive at the Neville's house? Are you prepared? Yes. Gosh, you didn't seem certain. Well, I don't know. As we knock on the door, will they be friends or foes? <laughs> Indeed. So I'm not going to start with Hugh Neville. We're going to start with Dorothy Neville. Can you please explain to me why the lovely, genial, warm Dorothy Neville 
ever got together with Hugh Neville? It's a good question. It's one I myself pondered. And I, I don't know whether you found this episode as suffocating as I did, but just I'm just so glad that I wasn't born earlier in the century because hmm. that, you know, was so many women's lives, wasn't it? You have to get married because you need the financial stability that a husband provides. You might not be able to work. You might not be able to own your own credit card or own a home, that kind of thing. Hmm. And so that's your life, isn't it? If you, you've got to find someone and you're not always lucky enough to find someone who's not a knob. And she's the second wife. So there is an age difference, isn't there, between them? Yes, she's the second wife, definitely, yeah. But oh, just the sacrifices you have to make to yourself in your life yeah. to have to survive and have stability. Yeah. And I just was, by the end of the episode, I, was, I just felt really claustrophobic. Yeah. She's a lovely character. I think she's well played by Joanna van Geisigen. But I just don't think there's enough there for her to get her teeth into. There should have been something more for her there. I think they should have played up the obvious. I think there's an obvious attraction between her and Romsey. Yeah. I didn't feel like it needed, they needed to make more of it because I felt like it came across very clearly okay. from watching. But yeah, I agree. I'm not going to say, no, Andy, we shouldn't give one of the few female characters more lines. <laughs> I kind of would like it to have been a scene or an element of the episode where she maybe holds his arm for too long or his hand and she ends up revealing and, she's like, and he's like, what's wrong? Are you OK? It's like, oh, yes, just my life here isn't all I need it to be. You know, yeah. there should have been something there where she got a chance to reveal her inner life, I felt. Yeah. And her struggle with having to deal with fucking Hugh Neville all the time. She would, have, she would have then said, oh, no, don't mind me. No, I'm being silly. You know, and she would have shaken it off. No, I've sent a moment of her revealing herself. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. So that's Dorothy. We must move on to Hugh Neville, who Peter Barkworth plays brilliantly. I mean, he's self-obsessed. He's self-important. He, he's naive. He's pompous. He's all these bad characteristics. But then that's really good writing. Yeah, and, and good performance. Yeah. At this point in his career, he's actually quite well established. Um, we should mention that he was um, one of the regulars in Manhunt, which is very much a forerunner to these sort of war series. So he was a regular in that. But um, yes, by this point, he was very established. So I imagine, you know, with massive guest star billing and he would have been paid a lot for this. So Hugh Neville, we learn everything we need to know about the character from, I mean, you know, these episodes aren't long. They're 50 minutes long. And yet in that time, we know him really fully. We have an absolute handle on his character. His selfishness, the way he's just annoyed about not being able to get, get down to do his, his writing because he's being disturbed. Despite but he's the not war. even writing anyway. I know. He's but like, also, oh, I can't think of anything. Yeah. Oh, I've typed the wrong name in the typewriter. Yeah. And then also, like, that scene, the, one of the best scenes is when... Romsey's talking to him about Joseph Conrad and thinks he's, he's um, you know, giving him a compliment. Oh, simple soul, Conrad. <laughs> I've always thought, far too one-dimensional for me. I'm like, Jesus Christ. And the joke there is to the viewer, you've not heard of Hugh Neville, but you've heard of Joseph Conrad. So that's the joke's on him with that scripting. It's clever. But, yeah. And Hugh Neville only has a French audience. So how is he going to get any sort of fame, you know? I know he's a fictional character, so there's an element of that. But still, it's it's just amazing that someone could be so rude about Joseph Conrad and think they were better than him. I mean, I know uh, Joseph Conrad was a great English writer and his native language was Polish, but well, I never did understand how he could do it. Well, I wouldn't compare myself to Conrad. I no wish to, to be perfectly honest. 
simple soul, Conrad. I was thought far too one-dimensional for me. But uh, no, in many ways, I'm happier in French. I suppose I've always felt more at home in France than in England anyway. Speaking to that aspect that he's moved abroad and he is only popular abroad kind of links into the could more than one person in the episode be the lost sheep theme. Oh, they've done it again. Yes, exactly. I'm trying to think of any other takes on lost sheep. Just like when we talked about growing up last time, it's like, what else could mean lost sheep? It is really, it is Romsey, but it's also is absolutely um, Hugh Neville. Yes. And to a certain extent, Dorothy as well. Yes, it's Dorothy being, you know, in that situation in her life. Yeah. Uh, as well as like rounding up airmen in general. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, Lisa, I suppose, I know this isn't really the theme, but like you could stretch it out and say Lisa's a bit of a lost sheep because she apparently doesn't get to talk <laughs> in her own scenes. Yeah, exactly. But also doesn't get to sit in on her own organisation meetings. <laughs> There's that one scene which you called the Sausage Fest, which is you've got, you've got Curtis, you've got Albert, you've got Gaston, and... Who else have you got? Alan. And all four of them are having a meeting. Presumably while Monique's running the Condide and maybe Natalie's waiting. I don't know. Maybe she's in Paris at this point. But the, and Lisa's nowhere to be seen. It's like they're all having a meeting without them. I'm sorry. No. But this behind the scenes meeting, which, I mean, if this was a, a true committee meeting, they're not quarrite, are they? <laughs> because the, cause they, don't have the, they don't have the leader there. They don't have the chair there. And they're just making all these decisions wrong. What I will say about that scene, though, which I did love, is clearly James Breeze Gaston is so desperate to leave his bank behind. It's, oh, I'll go, I'll go. And he's, he's like all brave about it. And they're all like, no, 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 it's too dangerous. And he's like, but really, I want to go. And I think he, I've got this vision of him desperate to leave this dank, cold bank office where he's doing all this forgery and he's so fed up of it. And he's fed up of Louise asking him questions and being generally Louisey. Being Louisey. <laughs> <laughs> he just wants to go and have some fun and he's denied, bless him. I also enjoy the bit of the mansplaining to other men, like, oh, well, you can't just, you know, go about asking that. Oh, it'll be very dangerous. And he's like, well, I wouldn't do it that obviously. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm not an idiot. I've survived so far. So Neville has an attack of the Anadorns here. I love that. The attack of the Anadorns. Thought she could be out of the war. But no, you can't be. And she, he discovers to his peril, ultimately, that he can't be out of the war. And it's the naivety of, like, he's just above it because he's posh, he's privileged. It's his privilege, I think, which makes him think he, he's outside of it, which is fascinating arrogance, isn't it? Yeah. And just to remind listeners who are like, the names, the names. That's Anna Dawn's is the mother of the child in the last episode. Yeah, keep up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And so anytime anyone wants to stay out of the war now or thinks they can, they're going to have an attack of the Anadons. You are listening to Down the Line, a Secret Army podcast. This episode should be praised for the wonderful juxtaposition of the total cynic, which is Hugh Neville, and the naive, sorry, I'm going to say it, idiot, um, Romsey. They're kind of, they're at either ends of the spectrum here. And it's just nice that we have that range and that contrast. I think one of the problems I had when writing the book was I kept saying, in stark contrast. And it was just because it always is, you know, and it's just like, it's clever. But yeah, maybe there's a lot of that in Secret Army. One thing I wanted you to talk to oh. is 
the clever interspersing of, of scenes in this episode. Oh, yes. Now that I've started noticing it, I always watch out for it, is the transitions between scenes. And so you have a shot of uh, the groundskeeper, you know, hunting, shooting things. Yeah. And then you have the imagery of Romsey running through the woods like he's being hunted. Yeah. And then you have a lot of almost joke-like transitions like, oh, I've never seen any German soldiers around here. And then it cuts to them, you know, going through the fields. And yeah. my favourite was um, when they're like, um, you know, well, could your friends contact you here? <laughs> uh, and he's like, oh, my, they don't know, the resistance don't know where I am. And then it cuts to them in the Candide with a map and they're like, so he's here. <laughs> <laughs> it's brilliant, isn't it? I love it. And I was like, oh, it's very good. I'm going to... I I'm, all yeah. my criticism for this episode, but I am going to give credit where it's due. It's very good. Yeah, exactly. Nice work from Paul Annette. Yes. I also enjoyed Binocular Cam. Oh, when was that? Remind me. Towards the end of the episode. And I can't remember who was looking through the binoculars now. Maybe Dorothy? But they had a, you know, looking over and then they had the, you know, the, ah. the screen narrows down to yeah. looking through binoculars. A very um, simple but effective effect of... Yeah just blocking out some of the shots, <laughs> except for two circles. But you could see, you know, the uh, motorbike on the road. Yeah, know. yeah, yeah. So good. I enjoyed binocular cam. We'll see if it comes back. I think that was the first first appearance of binocular cam. So let's see if it's used <laughs> again in future episodes. I must make mention of Bruce Montague, who is a very good supporting character here, playing Inspector Dubois. He has quite a lot of difficult dialogue, um, and he has to convey a lot of meaning and intention um, in a sort of covert way he he's saying one thing but he means another in the scenes with neville mm. and he's very good in this and i think it's really interesting that he is he he comes across as if he's just interested in law and order but the reality is he's a total and utter collaborator he's a traitor to the french but he's feathering his own nest he's making sure that he's safe and he's okay which i can kind of understand but at the same time you know you don't think of him as a collaborator, but he absolutely is. Uh, just to play devil's advocate for a second, though, he's in a difficult position in that Brant's threatened him, you know, oh, it won't go well for your district if you no, sure. don't find absolutely. a sermon. But I, I don't know yeah. how much you want to place on that versus his collaboration. No, I think you're right. I think you're right. That's an important point to make. I must say about Bruce Montague, for years he played Wendy Craig's love interest in the comedy series Butterflies. And I can't remember what his name was. He had a, a funny name. But and Wendy Craig, we used to go and meet him um, for lunch or at the park and they would feed swans together. But they never, I don't think, I think they, all they ever did was kissed. It was so chaste. It was hilarious. But it was like, you know, they never even went to bed. I think maybe they got into the same bed once and nothing happened. But it was just, it's just funny. He, he played that beautifully in, in Butterflies. So it was a very different character. But that's what he's most famous for. Just so you know. I have a really important question for you. When Brandt came down to France in this episode, do you think he packed his silk dressing gown with him? I'm, I'm absolutely certain. And I think he's had a look in the surrounding area and think, oh, I could probably visit that vineyard and get a few bottles of wine. And I think he's, he's on a trip here again. I think he's, yeah, yeah, I think he's got a lot of stuff. I think he's got some lovely cheeses. Oh. Probably some camembert. I like he's cheese. He's taking back. I do, too much. On a slightly more serious note, though, you know, it's not just the Lifeline regulars that are sidelined. Kessler and Brandt feel a bit sidelined. Honestly, how many episodes in a row is it now? I mean, is Kessler in it at all? He's not, is he? Uh, I feel like he's in... Yeah, I feel like he is in some scenes, but I think that speaks to 
that point that I'm making that we can't remember. Talking of Brand, I want to say that one of my favourite things about the episode is Michael Culver's performance. The charm he has, but also the threat, the guile. That was a, a loud sigh of contentment of just going, oh, he's such a brilliant actor. Isn't he? And he's enjoying himself so much here. Both Culver and Brandt are enjoying themselves here. And it's nice that you can tell they both are <laughs> without his acting showing. You know, um, that, that's, that's that thing. You're careful of your acting showing, but it's not here. Mm. It's actually completely composite and real. And both Reinhardt and Brandt are really good at, you know, gaining the false confidence of the airmen. Yes. I love it here when he's like, oh, what is it you say? Four two winks. And he's just like, puts his head back on the, <laughs> on the uh, seat and he's, it's just great. <laughs> I mean, he's got every, by the end of the episode, he's got everything he needs to know. Yeah. And he's been so clever with it. And I just love that. It's great. And then as the viewer, you're like, oh, come on, Curtis, told you not to do this, Romsey. Come on. <laughs> yeah, I know. You've, you've even been explicitly told. But he just, I think as he's so excited about Oboe and his part in that, it's a bit like when you're excited about something and someone asks you a question, you go, bleh. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're really proud of it and yeah. But also, if we are taking your earlier theory as to who he's in love with to be true, Brandt knows exactly where to play to. So he's like, oh, well, you'll be reunited with him in no time. Your buddy in the plane, Jeff. So he's probably like, oh, I'm going to see him soon. Let me tell you all about what we were working on. <laughs> yes, me and Jeff. Did you think that to be true? I was like... Is he lying or is his pilot dead? Is the pilot in a different camp? Oh. Or do you think he was telling the truth and he's like, oh, yeah, you're going to be going to the same place to be interned? Good question. I don't know. Mm. Oh, I've stumped you. You have stumped me. <laughs> well, maybe the listeners can um, contact us and let us know what they think. Was Brant a liar liar with his pants on fire or was he... <laughs> With his, with his silk dressing gown on fire, yeah. <laughs> would you like to see him? Or would that be possible? Oh, yes, of course. We could very easily make a detour. Based in a hospital near Aachen, we could stop over on the way to your prison of camp. Oh, yes. I must get onto the Red Cross and let them know you're safe and well. And then they can uh, get the news back to your wife. Oh, that's very good of you, sir. So... I must mention the tableau that's created in the Neville household. And I'm afraid I'm going to refer back to Doctor Who's State of Decay, no less. There's that gorgeous scene in State of Decay where Tom Baker, Lala Ward and the vampires are moving around in front of the camera so they each are fronted up to the camera at different points in different positions. And as they're giving their dialogue, they move around in this tableau. They change positions. and It's almost like a dance. This exact same technique is used here in Lost Sheep. Um, the difference is it's Romsey, Neville and Dorothy. And they move around in different, in different um, patterns. And the beauty is it's captured through one of the official photographs. So you've got Neville foreground and you've got Romsey and Dorothy behind. And oh, I love it's that. Just, it's just a lovely tableau. There's no other word for it, yeah. which sums up the heart of this episode. And yeah, I just think it's beautifully shot and directed. Yeah, yeah. And my overall impression was we talked last episode about how it felt like a play of the week. But this one feels like I'm kind of sat in a theatre show because we have so many scenes in that front room and they're very carefully staged and very beautifully staged. And I, I did enjoy that aspect of it. Something was new that hadn't occurred to me was Victor, the character of Victor. When they came to 
create the character of Victor in A Matter of Life and Death, were they just thinking, you know, had they forgotten there was already a Victor who was very similar and sort of gruff and a sort of a tradesman? But it was just he was called Victor again. I just thought that was quite surprising. They do feel a bit similar. Hmm. I agree. This Victor is played by Ivor Roberts, who is probably best known to us Doctor Who idiots for being, is it Councillor Mogren? He's definitely called Mogren. I don't remember his title, but he's one of the the men wearing horrible brown costumes at the Carled City that first the Doctor and Harry try to warn and then Davros and Nida go over and... Yes, but it's it's just quite a, v- a very different role from Victor here um, to that guy. Did you name the Doctor Who episode there and I missed it? Genesis of the Daleks. Sorry, I should have said, yes. So? I really enjoyed the comedy that Victor's character brought to the episode. Tell me more. Well, just that, presumably, he would have to go out and carry out that work in the house. So that if Germans came round and went, oh, well, a tradesman came round, you know, what were they asking you or what were they doing? He's like, well, look here, he's literally put up the shelves. Yes. But it, he didn't seem like he really wanted the shelves and he seemed a bit unhappy to have to genuinely pay for the shelves. But really, he was just there to see if he wanted anything being delivered to the train station in tour. Yeah. I mean, I've got a question for you as well. Is 500 francs a lot of money for shelves in 1942? I don't know. <laughs> I think it's... a Heck of a lot of money, a suspicious amount of money, if there's any paperwork. I've not looked at what that would be in today's term, adjusted for inflation. But if it's like £10,000... Well... But it was real oak, wasn't it? Once again, can you please prepare for these episodes <laughs> properly? I'm sorry, I've let you down. <laughs> you don't automatically know the currency um, value from the time of Secret Army. So, any other thoughts? Oh, should we go to Ryan? Yes, what did Ryan think about this? It always feels like a bit of a loose cannon. That's why I always really enjoy it. Yeah, and he always thinks of things that I have never picked up on, which is great. Well, no pressure on Ryan. He might not have done this time. But let's see what Ryan thought of Lost Sheep. I thought it was weird there was like a proper, like, all of the men talking about making the decision about getting him out and stuff. And it very much feels like the women do the humane thing and then the men have to do the planning and the seriousness of making the big heavy decisions which seemed a bit crap and then um when lisa couldn't make a what was it when he said to her the line was like we'll suggest something better yeah i was like all right calm down (laughs) seemed a bit mean um yeah but it's all i guess it's just it's just another angle of people that are kind of pretending the war's not happening Mm mm-hmm and sort of trying to just carve out an existence despite the war. Yeah. Because I guess we had that with growing up with the mother, and now we've got it with the Nevilles. Yeah. And I guess the overarching story is, war will find you regardless. Oh, that was a good line. (laughs) (laughs) So I'd already told you just before we started recording this that there's a second episode, a sort of... Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this isn't the end of this particular story. Good. Is that good? I think so. It would be annoying if they just went on to something else in the next episode. Yeah. Okay. Are they all your thoughts? I think so. Yeah. Okay. I don't think there's anything else. Should there be? 
You're looking at me like I should be saying something. No, not at all. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, I like his laugh. He's got a good chuckle. Yeah, bless him. Great point there. There was that one chance to kind of prove Lisa's worth there a bit by saying, well, have you got anything better? Like, if they had had another idea. Yeah. And then said, well, have you got anything better? And then Lisa said the idea that they go with. <laughs> they could have proven her a bit. Just being sorting this thing with Victor, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Imagine how cool it would have been if all the men are sat around talking about it. And then she comes in going, sorry, I'm late. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The same door opening way as the way that Natalie does when she goes into Avenue Louise. <laughs> yeah. It's all right now, chaps, I'm here. What have you been talking about? Oh, well, that's all rubbish. It's all sorted now. No thanks to you with your mother's meeting. I suppose I shouldn't call it a mother's meeting because that's what we want. So, I just must mention before we finish that I have a love of Peter Barkworth that stems only from one TV series that I watched in 1985 that no one has ever, ever talked about to me, ever, and I've never talked about it with anyone else. It was an eight-episode eight series called Late Starter. I've never heard of it. And he was a university academic who was suddenly, and I can't remember why, he suddenly ended up living in a bedsit, and I think his marriage fell apart, and he was kind of like, he kind of had a bit of a, a midlife crisis, and he suddenly just ended up with a different life, and it was really, I, having, given the things I've been through in the last few years, I'm really keen to see it again, to see if it stands up, whether it's interesting. And it'll be very heteronormative, I'm sure, but... He gave such a brilliant performance in that. And I was like, oh my God, that's Peter Barkworth. I always knew him from that thereafter. So it was brilliant. And he, his wife in it was played by Rowena Cooper, who was actually Terence Hardiman's wife. So, yeah, but I, I remember thinking, this is amazing. It's one of those series where I remember my family being like, Andy's obsessed with this. Why is he? He's 13. This is about a 50-year-old man suddenly changing direction in life. But, yeah. And why do you think you were? I think it was because of the characterisation was sensitive. I was switched on to character-driven drama by that point, probably because of Tenko and Secret Army and other shows. But it was it was one of those where I was like, I really care about these characters. Mm-hmm. Can one buy it on DVD now, or is it a bit of a lost TV show? You know, I haven't even checked whether it's on the tube of you. I should check. I bet it's not. Oh, late start of episode one. It's there! Yes. Oh, episode two. It's all there. All eight episodes. Oh, my God. I'm excited. Well, we know what you're doing this afternoon. Hurrah. That's what I'll be doing, watching Late Starter. It's on the YouTubers. And I notice it's got Joanna Hargreaves in it, who was Cherry in Tenko, one of the women who attacked Dorothy in Raffles. Anyway. Good knowledge. Good knowledge there. So I don't know that much about the oboe radio system that is mentioned in this episode, but um, I don't know if you have any more information on that. Well, now you ask. I happen to be an expert on oboe. I developed it, actually, in 1942. Oh, you look very young for your age. I know, I do. Actually, it was developed by my friend, Alec Reeves. My friend. (laughs) (laughs) And... This is a blind bombing device fitted into an aircraft but controlled from ground stations in England. So what happened, now I want you to picture this. Yeah. Yeah, picture this. Two stations transmitted pulses which were picked up by the aircraft and retransmitted to the ground stations again. 
The aircraft received the oboe signals, used the pulses to keep itself on the right track in order to pass over the target. The stations in England, by measuring the time taken to receive the pulses back again, calculated the aircraft's exact position and sent a short signal in the moment when its bombs should be released. So when the aircraft was in exactly the right place, they knew when to drop the bombs. So it was about making it more, it's about accurate bombing. So it was hugely important. The system's limitations, however, do you want to hear about the system limitations of Oboe? I would love to. Yeah, I can tell you're gripped almost as much as when you were hearing all the mansplaining. This is very the mansplaining moment of the episode. Uh, you're right in that I've not taken any books out of the library to research it more yet, but <laughs> I'm also not completely disinterested. So I'm going to say I'm going to state neutrality on the subject. Thank you. <laughs> but you can't stay out of the wall, AJ. <laughs> I walked right into that one, didn't I? You did. Limitations included the fact that it was a line-of-sight device, which meant the signal could not be bent over the curvature of the Earth, thus limiting its operational rage. Range, even. <laughs> it's quite ragey, though, isn't it, with its bomby. Each station in England could only control six aircraft, and as the maximum number of stations that could be used was three, only 18 aircraft could use Oboe at the same time. Sounds like a hell of a lot to me. Anyway. Yes, but if I may interject with some of my knowledge. Yeah. I didn't realise, until reading about it, that so many bombers would go over on bombing missions. Yeah. So sometimes it could even be, like, over 100, over 200. Yeah. Because I used to always find it funny that there were so many airmen in one episode of Secret Army, you know, or they'd be like, oh, we've got another 20 airmen this week. But actually, <laughs> yeah. that could be accurate, you know, if you've yeah. got hundreds going over and many are, are being shot down and crashing. Yes, that's a normal number, so... That's not very many. That is a limitation that only 18 could use it, if that's how many are going over. Yeah, exactly. The system was successful in that the Germans never managed to jam the signal. So they mm. might, Brandt might have passed on that information, but they never managed to jam the signal. But Oboe was superseded by the H2S system because it had fewer limitations. Presumably, more aircraft could bomb under that new system. But... It was still naughty, wrong and silly of Rumsey to talk about it so openly. Do you know how they used to jam signals when bombing Germany? Ooh. They used to drop metal strips. And so they would drop many, many, many metal strips. And you can see examples of this in the Imperial War Museum North. <laughs> and that would uh, damage and deflect the signals because it would just be like, you know, they're all messed up and reflected everywhere. Cool. Didn't know that. I like. And a very simple way. I, I like it when people are clever and come up with really interesting solutions to those kinds of problems. So that was really interesting. Mm. Yeah, it is. So can I trouble you for your moment or line of the week? Yes, but I was thinking about this last night and I don't know if I have a really strong moment that stands out to me. I think my moment is just I enjoyed the theatricalness like the syllables stress wrong but yes i enjoyed the theatricality of the episode and the craft if there were moments of it that felt really crafted you know like the the scenes where they're sitting and standing yeah. and moving around the room and i enjoyed that i i think i just enjoyed christopher guard playing his role very well i think that is my overall moment rather than a specific mm -hmm. moment of the week okay so i do have a specific moment it's the moment when dubois has Neville in his sights and you know that Neville is going to betray because he says nobody would know not even your wife and that's that's enough to make Neville turn traitor and decide yeah I'm, I have to do this Dubois knows and he knows I know he knows 
that was the that was the moment of the week for me. Very good. I mean, would you do anything so silly as to, uh, well, assist an English airman to take an example? When you know that you would be arrested, tried and shot, that your wife would be put into a concentration camp, that your work, which you care so much about, would be finished. No, you're far too sensible to risk all that. I mean, apart from your opinions. As you say, it wouldn't be very sensible. It would be a painful decision for you, of course. I mean, I appreciate that. But I think you'd uh, assist the official in charge of the investigation, don't you agree? I probably would agree with you. And knowing that any information would be treated in the strictest confidence, nobody would know, not even your wife. And that speaks to one of our listeners' comments that helps us transition nicely into the next section. Yeah. So... Edward Lewis um, just tweeted in and said he deserved what he got for being a traitor. I know that. Well, that kind of speaks to next episode, doesn't it? But it um, does. But that's also quite. Hard. That's quite direct. Yeah. Well, that was what I was going to say. Was that there is again, as as there always is in Secret Army. You know, you see both sides of it. He hmm. is ultimately being threatened with being shot or wife being taken off to a concentration camp for helping a downed airman. And yeah. it's not so simple as to say, oh, well, we think he deserved what he got because... Yeah. But also speaks to the intensity of emotion that Secret Army provokes as well. Indeed. So we should also hear from other listeners. So Liam Price said, Peter Barkworth is good whenever he appears. How many of us can be sure we wouldn't be tempted to behave as this character does? We'd all hope to do the moral courageous thing, but many of us would fall short. A brilliant series. Thanks, Liam. That's amazing and brilliant because yeah. we haven't mentioned that. Even better because we didn't say that. Yeah. Yes. You know, we always think that we'd we'd behave courageously and good, but in that situation, would we, to save ourselves or our loved ones? And and also, it speaks to that kind of like in the moment thing. So if someone just comes to your door and says, "I need help," you've got a few options, but you helping is going to come at great personal cost, probably. Yeah. I always remember Anne Valerie talking to me about Tenko and one of the situations in series two of Tenko um, where Lillian Cartland betrays Rose in order to get food for Bobby. And I was like, oh, the evil bitch. And I was so awful and like terrible because Rose died and we loved Rose and all that. But Anne Valerie said when she was writing that, she was writing herself as Lillian Cartland because she knew in that moment she would have betrayed Rose for the food as well as the writer. She was certain that that's what she'd do in that circumstance. So she knew she wasn't a great person in that way. You know, she would have done that because her, her child would have been more important. And I just love that, the fact that she was able to to say she wouldn't be courageous. Yeah. Yeah. It, it requires a great bravery to be caught in the moment and to act courageously and bravely, if yeah. that makes sense. You're not, you're not planning it and saying, right, I'm going to try and do this or I'm going to join this resistance movement and do that. Yeah. It's like, Decide on the moment, Emma, on your doorstep, what you're going to do. Yeah. We can always rely on Alex Wilcock to give us brilliant reviews, brilliant thoughts. Lost Sheep is cracking, isn't it? Actually famous Peter Barkworth as the fictionally famous author, alternately deceiving himself above it all and squirming, really earns the series' first guest star billing. But Christopher Gard in reverse nominative determinism as the two unguarded Romsey is even better. He's very endearing, but as Curtis shouts, a bloody fool. And it's bleakly hilarious that the top observer navigator first loses his escort, then gets further lost in France. While of the people we've met before behind the camera, Paul Annette's direction is again excellent, and perhaps most memorably, this is Brandt's best day. 
Perhaps the episode's one letdown is there's no Kessler this week to witness just how effective the Maior really is. Yeah. Because there is a lot of that interplay, isn't there, between Brandt and Kessler, and especially being like, oh, well, your methods aren't very effective, are they, Brandt? But then it would be great to just have at the end of the episode Brandt strolling in being like, da-da! Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but there's no payoff quite, yeah. No, there's not. But he's, he's pleased himself en- enough, I think, you know. Yes, yes. I, I just love it. I just love it when he goes, what is it that you say? Forty winks. Yes. <laughs> um, fascinating fact. There, there are only two episodes of Secret Army that Angela Richards does not appear in. What's the other one? Can't remember. <laughs> Do you know? Yes. It's Days of Judgment because they're looking for her in that episode. Oh, of course. But yeah, but this is the only one. Ah, oh, and do we know why? Was she busy this week or...? I don't think they had room for her in the script or, or for women at this point, quite <laughs> frankly. They didn't know they had girls. I actually think her performance in Guilt, which we'll come on to next time, is why they built up her character. Oh, okay. Have we got anything else? I think we're there, aren't we? I think we are there. Good. Until we see you next time. No, no, no. You've got things to say, haven't you? I do have things to say, please. Thank you, please. I would just like to say, as the episode draws to a close, you're going to hear another soundbite from um, another fan of Secret Army on what they love about the show and their memories of watching it. If you would like to get involved and perhaps feature at the end of... Uh, one of our podcast episodes please do get in touch at secret army pod on twitter or secret army pod at gmail.com and what else do we invite listeners to do andy we invite them to leave us reviews and is that an invitation or an order <laughs> let's say it's an order yeah if you're listening to this we've put a lot of time and effort into this the amount of editing time that aj spends on this i do far less i kind of rock up and all the production time yeah. Finding people to come on the show, interviewing them. Yeah, all of that. Yeah. I mean, I do make the episodes available online. You do, you do. <laughs> but still, yeah, there's a lot of effort. If you if you would like to um, reward AJ particularly Aww. for their efforts, then please do leave a review to show how much this means to you. Please do. Please do consider leaving a review and leaving a five-star one at that. Thank you. Thank you, please. Thank you, please. So, we will join you again when we go down the line next time for episode eight. I have been Andy. And I have been AJ. Bye. Bye. My name's Julian. I've been watching Secret Army on and off for about, my goodness, it must be about since the early 2000s, really. NJ Crisp is just like one of the best writers of the of the series. You can always rely on one of his episodes to be three or four dimensions of, you know, character development. And he, he really gets Kessler. He really gets um, Abafoire. He gets, you know, his episodes were always a couple of cut above. <laughs>